Well, good morning and welcome to church. It is so good to be here with you. You should be proud of yourselves for making it to church this December morning. Of all the things you can do that enrich your life, church is a part of the very best. And I think for so much of life, especially in the secular world, it blows my mind how anti-science, anti-logic, and anti-fact societies become. Because obviously, something doesn't come from nothing. And I think we love to ignore the fact that God is real. And uh, I am glad that you and your families are choosing to enrich your lives in this way and prioritize what really matters. Last week, we talked about the importance of our relationship with the church. And, uh, you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine a while back that really understood those sentiments. Um, She told me, she's like, you know, John, my spouse left me in death, and my kids, they love me well, but of course, you know, they got their own lives, you know, and I see them a few days a year. And then she said, my grandkids were wonderful when they were young. I had a great relationship with them, and they're still young, or they're they're still wonderful. But the world is their oyster, and I get to see them for a few minutes at family holidays when they come to talk to me, and, and they shout in my face like I'm deaf and dumb. And I might be deaf, but I'm not dumb. You don't need to talk slowly. I, I understand English, you know? And I thought, wow, that's funny. Okay, so thank you for expressing that to me. I'm a little scared. And then she said, I thank God for Jesus and his church. She said, Pastor, this place has become the most meaningful part of my life. Jesus gives me hope for tomorrow, but also comfort for today. And she said, I'm so glad that my late spouse and I chose to build a life here. I want to welcome you online, welcome you at the Jasper County Jail Campus. I want to welcome you Hebron, and I want to welcome you to Mott Wheatfield. It is good to be here with you. My messages typically last about a half hour, and our goal is that you'll leave with some questions answered, that you'll leave with practical handles on how to apply what Jesus, is teaches, what Jesus teaches to our lives. And we're at the very beginning of a new series of messages, so the next several weeks are going to be rooted around how to make the most of the Christmas hustle. It's about how to bring value and joy to the very busy Christmas season, and every week's going to be built around this idea. This week, I'm going to be mentioning some things about some North Pole secrets that you're probably going to want to consider whether or not you want your kids to hear, and that's just up to each family. We do have a great kids ministry that's going to be available to you. It's going to be only one or two sentences. It'll be pretty vague, but anyway, do what you got to do. Um, Check them in if you need to. This week, though, this is what the message is going to look like. We're going to look at a story, look at a passage of the Bible, which we will exposit verse by verse. Then I'm going to ask you some questions, followed by a challenge at the end of the message. And if you want to have a truly valuable, meaningful Christmas season that doesn't leave you disappointed, that's not full of anxiety and stress, but instead hope and fulfillment, you're going to want to lean into this message today. And uh, what I'm going to do is tell you a story um, that's not going to make sense at first. You're going to be like, wait, why? I thought we were talking about Christmas. Why is he talking about this? But then you're going to have this like lightning moment. You guys thought I got electrocuted by the microphone right there. Didn't happen. I was explaining what's going to happen. You're going to have this moment, and uh, you're going to be like, I love that story. I see how to get the most out of Christmas. I want that. So please bear with me. I want to start with a question. If I gave you $30,000 to spend on whatever you wanted in your mid-20s, how would you spend it? One option that many people choose is to get in the biggest, most stressful, and complex arguments of your life with your mother and extended family, buying one of the most extraordinarily difficult, expensive, fancy, one-time-use outfits of your life. Then you can invite all of your friends that you haven't seen in years but have some shared memory with, as well as, you know, a bunch of people you've never met to this big extravagant party. You could spend $35 a plate on some food that, let's be honest, is mediocre at best. 
And then you could ask three of your closest friends to give a speech about you that is very embarrassing, months in advance. One friend will prepare, they will nail it, everybody's gonna feel warm and fuzzy. One friend will get a little wasted, not prepare at all, and they'll ramble on until they embarrass themselves and you, and you ask them to sit down, after which they'll text you furiously day after day telling you how sorry they are. And then one friend will glorify themselves telling extremely inappropriate stories that cut you down and make them look good because you realize in that moment you're not a friend, you're a frenemy, right? Then you'll have the man that you just swore to love smash cake in your face, even though you made him swear that he would not. And you'll try to hold it together because you don't want to cry and mess up the makeup worse than he just messed up, that he just messed up. And you're having your first marital fight right there. You're mega ticked. And then you could have a series of awkward dances with people that kind of hate dancing. And then just as the party is getting started, you would leave this lavish party to spend a few minutes of awkwardness doing something that you've waited your whole life to do, but it's like, is this? And then your husband going to fall asleep right away, and you'll be like, oh, okay, all right. And then you wake up the next morning going on an extremely complicated set of logistical travel plans you know, around the world, and after the wedding and honeymoon are all done, you're going to say, how am I going to pay them bills? You know what would be nice is having $30,000 more than I have right now. And you're going to ask yourself, why do we do this? Like, what was the purpose? Was it so that we could look at Facebook posts and say, 456 people took the time to like this and put hearts on it, and that was worth it? Just kidding. Nobody ever says that. Like, wow, this face, you know, you're going to look at the one, the one that is the surprise face, you know, that that girl from high school that, you know, it was always mean. Like, why did she do that? What does surprise mean? Is she trying to get at me again? Nobody ever says, that's worth it. I think sometimes, though, we look back at the reception. And we see the picture of you dancing with grandpa, and you're like, that was that magical moment that made the whole thing worth it. But if you really think about it, it's like, while you were dancing with grandpa, you didn't feel special. What you thought is, he smells funny, and who do I got to dance with next? You know what I mean? Like, that's what you were thinking about. It wasn't that special. You know what was special? It was Pinochle at the cabin with grandpa, and it cost $30,000 less, and it was way more fun. Like, what are we doing this for? Is it for that magical feeling that you get? Does that magical feeling outweigh the 10 grand of consumer debt you're now carrying because you went over budget? Does it outweigh the serious and embarrassing consideration you are now giving to divorce because you spent more time preparing for a wedding day than a marriage together? We have a handful of weddings in our life that we're really involved in. And now, just standing in a wedding is easy. When a friend says, hey, will you stand in this wedding for me? You know, it's like, okay, I'll give you 750 bucks. That's basically what they're asking. Do you love me enough to give me $750 buying a dress or renting a tux you'll never wear again and going on all these, you know, that's the question. But weddings that we're actually financially and otherwise involved in, there's your wedding, there's your siblings' weddings, there's your kids' weddings, and then there's a couple grandkids' weddings, right? Ten weddings that you kind of, you're really involved in. And if you think about it, I don't know anybody who's like, you know, if I could go back in time, I'd love to spend more money. That's what I wish. I just wish that I'd paid another five grand on flowers, I don't know anybody who's like, you know what, I wish I would have made that more complicated logistically. I wish that the centerpieces would have been, you know, a little more. Like, I wish I would have just spent more time on the centerpieces. That's what my wedding really needed. You know, some people are like, I wouldn't change a thing, but most of us are like, that was stressful, and it was fine, but I don't think it was worth the amount of money that we spent on it. But then what do we do? We keep going back and doing the exact same thing 10 times in our family, over and over again. Why? Because that's just, well, that's what you do. And a big part of me is thinking, why do we go through all this hustle? I mean, the biggest logistical tasks we will ever pull off for many of us, the most extraordinary, momentary, lavish expenditures that we'll do in our entire life, you know, that's not invested like in an asset that we can sell or anything. Why are we doing this? I mean, how many of us would do some research before we put 30 grand into a company, especially in our early 20s? And I think the big question, the big question of weddings, the big question that I want to address today 
is how do we bring value to the hustle of life? Jesus actually talks about this. There's a similar scenario in the Bible where Jesus, he uses this thing called a parable, which is a story that has a point, right? He tells a, a fictional story that makes a point. And he wants to really bring some eye-opening insights into how to bring value to the hustles of our life. It comes from Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 16. We're going to go through it verse by verse. You can follow along in your Bibles, paper Bibles on the phones. I'll have it on the screens. It's all good. I love it, though. I'm becoming more old-fashioned. I like analog paper Bibles, too. I think they're really cool, like underlining it. You know, maybe I'm just getting old-fashioned. But anyway, Luke 12, verse 16, it says, Then Jesus told them a story. He said, A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. So he's got 3,000 acres, right? He's a rich man. He's killing it. He owns it. He's got, you know, a Case IH or a John Deere with a 16 row up front. He says to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. And then he said, I know. I'll call FBI buildings, and I'll have them build a huge pole barn. Okay, I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store my wheat. That's what you tell your wife. And then other goods, you know, your, your side-by-sides and everything else that you really want. So I can put the boat in there, the V-drive, the snowmobiles, okay? And then I'll sit back and I'll tell myself, this is what rich farmers do. They look at me and they say, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. I'm just kidding. Farmers never say that. They always say we never have enough. That's the farming way, right? But anyway, you have enough for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, um, this is a crazy story because for most of human history, almost nobody could retire, right? I mean, we are incredibly wealthy on a global perspective and on a global historical perspective. The fact that we can actually store away enough to retire means we're extremely wealthy, right? This guy's extremely, extremely wealthy. And there's nothing wrong with that. He builds big barns, he has barns, he has bumper crops, he continues to expand, nothing wrong with this. The next verse in this passage is often misunderstood and taken out of context. Okay? you got to read all the surrounding stuff. I'm about to read something. It's not going to make sense, but then when I put it in context, it's going to be like, that makes sense. Okay? He says, but God said to him, you fool, you'll die this very night, and then who will get everything that you've worked for? And when people read that, I mean, they just kind of shut down. They're like, is Jesus saying we shouldn't contribute to a Roth IRA or a 401k? Is Jesus saying it's not okay to expand a business? By no means, by no means, by no means. Okay? He is actually about to say that it is okay. In the very next verse, which is the key to the whole passage, it's the point to the story, to the parable. And this next verse I'm about to reveal to you is my Christmas guiding star. This is a passage that you should remember. This is a passage that will change your life. It is a guiding star for so many events in my life. I love Luke 12 and verse 21. It says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth. And when you read that first part, it's like, oh, Jesus is against wealth. But my seminary professor said, when you read a but in the Bible, remember, I like big buts, and I cannot lie. They're so important. He says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. There's nothing wrong with storing up earthly wealth. Do it. It's all great. Just make sure that if you do that, it doesn't come at the cost of a rich relationship with God. Make sure that it's, it's both. It's both. The key is the but. you got to have wealth and a rich relationship with God. Or don't have wealth, but make sure you have a rich relationship with God. Because why would you spend all this time making the short, temporal, fleeting life on earth that is just an eye blink of time in the speck of eternity? Why would you spend all that time making that life rich but not spending time working on your eternal relationship with God? We have a pretty significant preponderance of evidence that tells us there is an afterlife, according to the studies conducted by tens of thousands, of, or on tens of thousands of near-death experiences, pretty clearly and universally confirm that when we die, we go to the biblically described heaven or hell. And it's interesting, you know, non-Christians experience this outcome that is described in the Bible. People who have never heard the name of Jesus encounter Jesus in their near-death experiences. And in light of this, 
Jesus rightly makes the point. Why? We know there's an afterlife. We know that something doesn't come from nothing. Why would you waste this fleeting life on earth and not prepare for eternity? Jesus says, that's foolish. And the Greek here is probably more literally translated, that's dumb or stupid. And this is where we mess up in the biggest areas of life, isn't it? We trade what we want most for what we want now. All the time. You know, when you're looking at your kids and you know they need discipline, we trade what we want most, which is well-adjusted, actualized kids for what we want now, which is a kid that isn't crying. We do this with weddings, right? Why do we prepare for a wedding but not a marriage? It's so foolish, and yet so many of us get swept up into it. We mortgage our lifetime together to our spouse to have a big day. Why would we prepare for a lifetime but not for eternity? Jesus says this is foolish. Why do we get swept up to, into it, yet so many of us do? You know what we spend an equal amount of time when you add up the cumulative total doing as weddings is, I would say, Christmases. Celebrating Christmas every, every year. I mean, the cumulative total of time and energy that we put into Christmas, if you look at it, is a lot. We do it every year. Logistically, it's the most complicated time of year. It's insane. Americans spend $1 trillion, just under $1 trillion in the holiday season. That's like a Dr. Evil amount of money. That's a lot of money. For stores, it's busy, but for us, it's busy. The majority of social family interaction happening at Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. I mean, you know, it used to be people would build these houses because we want to entertain. That's what we want to do. We're going to build this big house to entertain. Now we don't need big houses. We just need a chair with a mini fridge for our phones. You know what I mean? So we could sit there and we, don't need, we never have people over. We're just hermits. We're all introverts now, right? And once a year, like, we, we get scared. We invite people into our little dens where we sit and play with our phones. It's like, oh, this is crazy. What do we do, right? And um, we go through the, all that anxiety and stress. And then every year after Christmas, depression rates, um, suicide rates hit their highest. And I don't know anybody who after Christmas is like, boy, I wish I would have spent more money. I wish I would have scheduled more things. I wish I just had one more set of step-parents to go visit. You know, we only had six Christmas celebrations. I wish we would have had seven or eight. You know, nobody's like that. And we do all this stuff. And just like weddings, sometimes I wish we would stop and ask, what are we doing all this hustle for? My dad is um, like a superhero decision maker. He is so good. If you have a tough decision in life, my dad is just so good at synthesizing the bare bones behind the decision and helping anybody make great choices. He does this for people in our church. He does this for me. So, so helpful. But I remember um, for weddings growing up, he would always say, people have no vision for weddings. They get in all these needless fights, whatever. And um, his dad, my grandfather, had three daughters, right? I've got three aunts. And when they were all getting married, he offered them $10,000, which in the 70s, you know, adjusted for inflation today would be 50 grand. So that's a lot of money. And he'd give it to him and he'd say, this is for your wedding or for whatever you want it to be. I'm not giving you a dime more. Though. You spend it on what you want. And you know what? That was awesome because when the money became theirs, instead of saying, we want to spend it all, like they had the incentive to say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to spend it all. I want a down payment on a house. I want this. I want that. We're going to go simple. We're going to go whatever. And it was really awesome to allow them to make choices, you know, and different personalities, different decisions. You know, one aunt spent it all. The other aunt saved it. Whatever. It's all good. And, uh, you know, my dad all the time talked about, you really need to think about the vision behind what you really want. My dad, when I was going to marry Kristen, I wish he would have given me $10,000, but he didn't because I was his son. You know, that would have been awesome, dad, if you did that. But anyway, my dad sat me down with Kristen and he said, I really want you to visualize what you want as an outcome for your wedding. Like, I want you to really spend some time thinking about what do you really, really want one day, one month, one year, 10 years after this wedding? Like, what do you want? What is the legacy that you want this wedding to create? And then I want you to really plan a wedding that's gonna bring about the outcome that you really want. And what we thought about, and you know, not everybody needs to do it the way we did it, but what we thought about is, you know, we want a marriage more than we want a wedding. 
And it can be both, but we want to make sure we prioritize the marriage first. And for us, we realize we don't need to spend 30 grand and have this lavish wedding to produce that outcome. And we want to have a big party for all our friends, but maybe we can do it differently. And we really wanted to think about why we're doing what we're doing. So instead, for our wedding, and we had what many, many people who were at our wedding have told me multiple times. John, your wedding was the best wedding I've ever been to. It was so much fun. We did $5 pizzas from Pizza Remember those Pizza Mias that you used to be able to get? One pizza would feed like six people for five bucks. It was awesome. Then we got some kegs. We don't drink, but, you know, a lot of people did. A lot, a lot of people did. And uh, then... We said no gifts because Kristen and I were a little bit older. We had two houses, right? I had my house. She had her house. We already had two of everything. Why do we need three of everything, right? So we're like, we're not doing gifts. We don't need that. We already got everything, right? If you want to give us a gift, make a donation to the church. That's what we said at the time, which was really cool. It was a great way to start off our marriage together. And then we said, bring your own dessert. You know why? Because people like dessert. And we had the most amazing dessert bar you've ever seen. It was like a mile long. It was a cornucopia of desserts. People were like, this is amazing. Oh, no. Everybody was Cookie Monster. It was so much fun. And um, we invited 500 people. And we had a big snowstorm. I was like, nobody's going to show up. You know, it's crazy. Big snowstorm, ice storm, whatever. 550 people showed up. And uh, it was crazy. And uh, we did it all for about 1000 bucks. So it was pretty sweet. That was an awesome wedding. And the time we would have spent planning that wedding and picking out details, we spent reading books on marriage, seeing counselors, taking out couples that we really respected. We took them out to eat and said, hey, tell us your secrets. What are, what's your best advice? What are the big don't do's and must do's for your marriage together, right? And that's what we talked about. We really invested many, many hours in learning about how to do a marriage rather than plan a wedding. And then for the actual wedding ceremony, I told my pastor, I said, all I want you to do is present the gospel of Jesus. I want you to tell people that there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. I want you to tell people Jesus is the way, the only way, the only truth, the only life, to spend eternity with God in heaven. And so we did, and it was awesome. And that's what happened on our wedding day because a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. And I'm not telling you the way that we did it is the way you have to do it. You know, you can have both. You can have the big, lavish wedding. That's awesome. Just make sure that you leverage that opportunity to have a rich relationship with God. That should be, you know, the big vision behind it. I mean, that's what he's saying in a lot of these, a lot of these decisions. I forgot to mention, our wedding was Harry Potter themed, which was sweet! As we come into this holiday season, my heart is broken because I see a lot of families that are hustling and they don't get fulfillment out of it. I see a lot of us, we, we've reached this place where we're almost numb. You know, the anxiety has reached this height level where we just take all our feelings and we shove them into a box and we try not to feel because we're anxious and whatever and we just kind of go through it, running from event to event, family to family, making orders on Amazon. I mean, I feel like all I do is break down boxes you know, it used to be you'd have bags to deal with. Now it's just boxes, Amazon boxes, all day long, breaking them down, bringing them to the garbage. It's crazy. I went to a real store yesterday, and it was crazy interacting with people. I was like, this is better than Amazon. I actually enjoy this, you know, whatever. But um, and don't go north of the river around Christmas because it's like Mario Kart up there. It's crazy. Did you just shoot me with a red shell? What are you doing? This is nuts, you know? But to get the most out of Christmas, I really want to challenge you not just to focus on storing up earthly wealth, but also having a rich relationship with God. It's both. And I wrote down some questions, and these questions are not the end of the message. We're about four-sixths of the way through. But um, these questions are really helpful for you. I know you can reduce it, but I want to get really precise about where we're at. Okay? Four questions that you can ask. Number one, what does a win look like for your family on July 4th? Or J J January 4th. <laughs> I want you to, I know what a win looks like on July 4th, and there's a lot of boom! Okay? But um, I love America. But I want you to think about what does a win look like that Tuesday after New Year's, right? That's January 4th. It'll be your first day back to normal. What do you want to feel like? What do you want to accomplish on 
that day? What do you want to have? What will be the most glad, the thing you're most glad about doing? You know, really visualize, and this is what's most important, really synthesize it. Will there be anything that you'll be upset about not doing? I think just taking the time as a family to think, like, these are the things that I really want. Teenagers, take the time to really think, like, this is what I want to do. This is what I wanna, who I want to say hi to. I like to visualize ahead of time. When I'm going to go to a specific gathering, who do I want to be intentional about talking to? You know, because I'm going to show up, and this person might corner me, but listen, this, this person in my family, a little bit older, and I want to really know about their life, and I don't actually know, and I want to ask, you know, you just really visualize. What do you want to feel like on January 4th? And the next question you ask is, what do I need to do to make that happen? You know, and, and obviously some sub-questions there, you know, what do, I, what do I need to buy? Who do I need to contact? How do I need to behave? This is an important question for some of us dudes. You know what I mean? Like maybe it's time to, to, to slow down on the eggnog, you know, or, or pull the, I don't know what they put in it, rum or, or, or Coca-Cola. I, I don't know. I don't drink eggnog. We don't drink. But anyway, like maybe it's time to Hang up the, the eggnog spurs or whatever it is because you always get three sheets to the wind and embarrass yourself at this one party. Like, you know, how do you need to behave? For my wife, how do I need to focus my mindset? She always asks me that because there's this one party I go into and I always start fights. And she's like, John, number one, someday you are going to get punched in the face and I know you're not going to like that. And number two, like, can you just be nice? You know what I mean? Can you like actually focus your mindset on not being mean and not saying controversial things? Please, right? Baby, please. Okay, and then lastly, um, what do I need to prioritize? What do I need to prioritize to make that January 4th vision happen? Okay, third set of questions. What do I need to not do to make that plan happen? Like, what are things that we can drop? Uh, are there any traditions or rituals that you participate in that are not bringing your family closer to the goal that you really want? <clears throat> and now I'm about to say some things, and I get that the Hill family's really weird. You know, we're weird. I'm gonna share with you how we're weird. Like, we, you know, we don't have a TV. We do lots of, you know, weird stuff. But um, Kristen and I, when, when we were getting married and we are thinking about our family, we just thought, we want our kids to be super excited about Jesus at Christmas. We don't want them to be, you know, thinking it's about me and about presents. We want them to be thinking about Jesus, right? So we always have a birthday party for Jesus at Christmas. We do, First Church makes these birthday bags. Um, you can actually get them this week. We have them out there for you and your family. And, you know, sometimes it's a birthday cake. This year we're doing like a whole manger scene. We did it with my kids yesterday. It was so much fun. And um, we actually don't do the gift thing for our kids, right? We don't do that at birthdays either. We let them for their birthday buy a gift for one person in their life. We give them 35 bucks. We say, you can buy a gift for anyone you want, but we want them to know life is about Jesus, not about you, right? And you don't have to do that. Again, a lot of your kids will be like, let's never go back to church, whatever. But um, <clears throat> we want to really think what is going to allow us to have a rich relationship with God. For our kids, you know, um, I don't mind St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, like I think it's a great true story about this great old guy who punched this dude Arius in the face and ended this huge controversy. That's Santa Claus. He punched a dude in the face and ended this big church controversy by punching a dude in the face. My man, Santa Claus. I don't mind my kids learning about that, but I just want to make sure that everything I tell them is truthful because I remember when I found out some things that you know may have not been within the realm of truth, the first thing I thought was, well, is everything they told me about Jesus true? Right, that was my first thought. And I'm not saying you can't, I'm not saying you shouldn't, I'm not saying he's good or bad, that's for you to decide. I just think the big question is, um, am I leveraging this to have a rich relationship with Jesus? Which brings me to my fourth question. Read Luke 12, 21. I mean, put this on your dashboard. Put this in your life. Think about it. Like, I cannot tell you what a great passage this has been for me. And ask yourself, am I being foolish or wise? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth. Nothing wrong with earthly wealth. But if you do it at the cost of having a rich relationship with God, that's a problem. And look, I want my kids and loved ones to have earthly wealth. And in so many ways, Christmas has got that in spades. We're killing it with the earthly wealth. It's a big wealth-giving extravaganza. That's what we do, you know? I mean, we get so much earthly wealth, we go to Jasper County Junction with trunks full of garbage bags, just throwing stuff out so we can make room for the more. And that's good. That's awesome. 
but are we also leveraging that to have a rich relationship with God? Because Jesus cautions us. He says, it's going to be easy. It's going to be so easy to get caught up in storing up earthly wealth at the cost of a rich relationship with God. Now, I get that a part of this passage is a bit of a downer at Christmas because the dude dies, right? He builds these big old barns. He gets it all done. It's going to be awesome. He's going to commission these brand new grain bins and whatever else, and then he dies. And I think that's part of the big disappointment that we feel with all these big celebrations, isn't it? Weddings, Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving. It's a ton of fun, but, but in this life on earth, we know when things end that all good things come to an end. And it kind of reminds us that this life is fleeting. And there's this part of us just gnawing in our heart like nothing good lasts forever and why does that happen? I think that's why that depression happens because we have these amazing experiences and closeness and loving one another and Christmas carol and it's awesome and we're connected and then, and then we realize, but we're dying. But for Christians, there's something else. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we're wasting away. We're dying. You know, outwardly, you know, all of us, we're going to get congestive heart failure. We're going to get, you know, cancer, whatever it is that gets us. I mean, the death rate hovers right around 100%. He's pointing that out. But for Christians, he says, inwardly, we're being renewed day by day because of the grace of Jesus. I love that passage so much because as Christians, it reminds us that, yeah, we're going to die and leave our pole barns full. But we can have a rich relationship with God. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Lord Jesus, remind us of this, this season. I think all this begs the question, what does it mean to have a rich relationship with Jesus at Christmas? I mean, that's the big question of the Christmas season, and I spent a lot of time saying, make sure you have a rich relationship with Jesus, but how? How do you actually, how do you do that? I wrote down two things. The first thing, I think, is setting your hope in Jesus. Setting your hope in Jesus. Is Jesus really what your hope is set in this Christmas? Because I think for a lot of us, it's not. I mean, our hope is set in like family celebration. You know, I hope I get a Red Rider BB gun. I hope I get whatever. I mean, there are all these things. Like, I really hope I get this. I hope it. And our hope is set in these earthly fleeting things. And if that's what our hope is set in, it's going to disappoint us. Jesus says, that's foolish. You know, there's nothing wrong with gathering it. There's nothing wrong with getting it. But the, the true hope that you hang your heart upon is Jesus. My friend that I mentioned at the start of this message, she reminds us all, it all leaves us. Spouses die. Kids grow old. Grandkids forget about us. Someday all our stuff is going to get cleaned out of our house and put into a big roll-off dumpster. Our bodies are wasting away, and nothing can stop it but Jesus but Jesus is our hope. Christmas is about that hope. Why is it good news for the whole world? Why do you wish it was true even if you aren't a Christian? Because the God who created the universe came from heaven to earth on a midnight clear so that we could have a relationship with God, so that we could spend eternity in, in, in the midst of a world full of chaos and fighting and illness. Jesus comes and he gives us hope in the midst of all of it. And he doesn't make all that other stuff go away. He gives us hope. Something doesn't come from nothing. Intelligent design doesn't come from no intelligence. The archaeology is so clear. The Jesus of the Bible is God in the flesh who came from heaven to earth so that we could know him. And that begins by making Jesus our leader and forgiver. That's true Christianity. And I know a lot of you, you like church. You know, you like the community and you probably believe in God to some extent. You know, you come, you know, whatever. It's a good thing. You know, it raises the bar in life. It's always good, whatever. Um, but I want you to know the devil believes in Jesus. 
but that doesn't make the devil a Christian. Lots of people believe in Jesus, but the Greek word that talks about belief is it's deeper than our word. Okay, it's much deeper than that. The Greek word for belief, it, it implies a belief so deep it results in a transformed life, a life that is conformed to the image of God, a life where, where you follow Jesus as your leader and forgiver. Jesus, I fall short of your standard. I need your grace. I'm all in with you. Have you done that? I think a lot of us, oh, I'm a good person. You know, I just do church. I'm part of the community. But, you know, what if you went all in with Jesus? What if you said, you know, I, I need to make profession. I need to get baptized. You know, I come here, but I'm ready to say, in front of a bunch of people. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Jesus tells us when we acknowledge him before people, he acknowledges us before the Father. I want to challenge you this Christmas to consider going all in with Jesus if you haven't done that. I want to challenge you to consider putting your hope in him. I think that this can be the year. This can be the Christmas. Now, all of your Connect cards, I have um, this box there for you. It just says, I want to learn about following Jesus. If you're here today and you heard this message and you're like, yeah, I know that God is real. And, you know, my family, like, we do. We store up earthly wealth. We're, we're caught up in that. And we're in this rat race, you know, of kids' sports and the lake and all these different things. And do we really prioritize Jesus? No, and we need to do that. I'd love for you to check that box. I'd love to get in contact with you this week and pray with you and talk about what it means to really follow Jesus as your leader and forgiver by going all in with him. This Christmas, I want to challenge you to set your hope on Jesus. The second thing, and this is a big one, is um, I think that having a rich relationship with Jesus means storing up treasure in heaven. You know, my wife and I both decided to follow Jesus many years ago, and both of us have realized that just hanging out at the church, just doing, you know, expository, inductive Bible studies, studying Jesus, whatever, it's good. It's good. Knowing God's Word is good. Being in Christian community is fine. But true, real, deep discipleship, real Christianity comes from doing what Jesus called us to do, which is to see people far from God filled with life in Christ, to share the hope of Jesus with our friends and family. And every year for us, Christmas is a big reminder to reach our friends and family with the gospel of Jesus. And that's what we want to orient our kids toward. Every Christmas for us, like, we want to involve our kids in that. You know, we do the bag thing with them, showing, hey, it's Jesus' birthday. We want you to be a part of that. And then um, what we do is we make these mason jars with, you know, brownie mix or whatever, cookie mix in them. And um, we go to all of our neighbor's house, and we invite them to church. And our whole subdivision, most of, not our whole, many people in our subdivision come to this church. Hi, we love you guys. You get them from us every year, you know. That's what we're doing. We want you to know about the hope that we have in Jesus. That's why we do it. And um, I remember one year, uh, we made these snow globes, and we were going out, and we had these new neighbors just moved in. And we knocked on their door. Their names were Bob and Tony Clements. We invited them to church, and years later they're here, but I asked Tony and Bob to share their story. Bob would have, but I wasn't prepared ahead of time, and so it was very, very late that I asked him to do it. But Tony shared her story about her experience at church, and I want you to see it this Christmas. Go ahead and play it. Hi, my name is Tony Clements. I was born and raised in Hebron, Indiana. I was raised by a single father with two older brothers. I was a free-range child. Everybody in town knew my family. They knew me by sis. When I became a uh, teenager, uh, that was kind of the height of my dad's addiction. And at that time, I was given an option to move in with my aunt and uncle. I met my husband, and we were not attending church. We had moved here five years ago, and it was right at this time that a woman had knocked at my door and it was Kristen. We chatted for about 15 minutes. We prayed together. She handed me a snow globe and a card um, inviting us to Christmas Eve services. And we 
did not attend that Christmas. It was several months later that we decided to try First Church. Kristen said, I'll sit with you. I remember going home and telling my husband, like, this is gonna be a good fit for us. We started to come regularly, and there was a moment, though, that we realized that we had not given our lives to Christ. And it was shortly after where I did give my life to Christ. After that, my husband had a conversation with Pastor John and decided to follow Jesus, too. And ever since then, we have been attending this church I am now in Hebron as the children's director in the hometown that I grew up in. I couldn't imagine it being any different. I get to share Jesus with kids every Sunday. And it was because of that one invite, even though we didn't attend that Christmas, that changed our lives forever. And we are so grateful for that. Well, I think it's like the one time that a hot glue gun craft from Pinterest has been like something that I value. But uh, she gave me this jar. She said, John, this is really precious to our family. Please make sure not to break it. And I said, well, I'll do my best. But um, I'm thankful for Jeff Wright, my youth pastor, who came to me and said, hey, I really want you to come and give Jesus a try, John. And I know that your parents love the Lord and I know that you might not, but he really encouraged me and invited me to be a part of that. I'm so thankful that Colleen Malchak, who's actually, um, she's from Minnesota, but she's visiting the Hebron campus today, invited my wife to church and shared the message of Jesus with my wife. And both of us, are we're eternally grateful for those simple invites. My wife, she shares about the first time she came to church on Christmas Eve. Her family was celebrating and whatever and doing the things that they do. And she said, you know what? Like this year I want it to be about Jesus and it would be foolish of me to be rich with things on earth, but not have a rich relationship with God. And she came to church that Christmas. And God has been changing her life, you know. And I look at Bob and Tony's story, and here's the thing. They were in and out of church in their life. Like, she even came to this church at Dutch Corners for a while, and um, she went to church at her old house in Michigan. And they just, they came once in a while, and they thought they believed in God. But it wasn't until five, six years ago, after a big break from church, they realized, we're not actually all in with Jesus. We believe in him, but we're not all in. And this Christmas, I would challenge you to consider going all in with Jesus. And this Christmas, you know, if you're a follower of Christ, I would challenge you to, being, to, to store up treasure in heaven. I've got invite cards on all of your seats, and uh, you can grab it. You can just humor me, take the invite card, put it in your pocket, and say, who's close to me but far from God? You know, we've got amazing Christmas Eve services planned. We've got amazing Christmas services planned. Maybe say, hey, I'd, I'd like you to come and see what Christmas is really about this year. And I'm excited for us to beat the hustle this year because a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. As we close, I'd like to ask you to stand to your feet and I'd like to have a prayer at all of our locations, the jail at Hebron Online and here at DeMott Wheatfield. God in heaven, I thank you so much that you don't ask for blind faith, you give us informed faith. God, at all of our locations, I ask that you would give us the courage to be all in with you. I ask that you would give people the courage today to choose to set their hope on you, to choose to follow you as their leader and forgiver, God. Give us the courage to do that, the courage to actually follow through. God, I ask that for those of us who follow you, would you make this Christmas about giving others that hope, about having a rich relationship with you, about living out this great commission? Would you open up conversations and opportunities to see people who are close to us but far from God be filled with life in Christ? God, I thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for the evidence that you give us. Today, we choose to hang our hope on your grace. 
It's in your name we pray. All God's people said amen and amen. Let's sing this last song together.